Okay, welcome to our lunchtime debate. We are very uh, fortunate to have the participants that we have today. Um, thank you, whoever decided to put this up. Uh, the, the debate is about the, uh, our discussion today is about the Heller case. As you all know, as you should all know, uh, this is the D.C. gun ban case uh, that was brought by various and sundry parties to challenge the constitutionality of the ban on, the effective ban on handguns. Uh, in the District of Columbia, and uh, it was brought against some of our better judgment about whether the time was right to do this, but we're going to find out whether the time was right to do this. And um, it now has, cert has been accepted after prevailing in the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. Um, the, uh, the, uh, the D.C. Uh, government's uh, petition for cert was granted, and now, as you know, there's going to be, there's briefing and argument now in the case. So this will be the first case since the, United, the case of the United States versus Miller, in which the Supreme Court will opine on the meaning of the, of, of the Second Amendment. Uh, this is an interesting, um, the Second Amendment itself is a very interesting topic. It is one of the reasons, my own work on the Second Amendment is one of the reasons why I became an originalist. I was not an originalist at the time I started doing my work on the Second Amendment or the Ninth Amendment. And what I found was I, I was experiencing a kind of cognitive dissonance, which is on the one hand, I wasn't an originalist. On the other hand, I was single-mindedly preoccupied with what the original meaning of the Second Amendment was. And eventually I resolved this dissonance by deciding that there was a reason why I was so interested in the original meaning, and then I had to figure out what that reason was, and then I was persuaded that that's what I should be doing from now on. Um, what's interesting about this debate is that it's an entirely originalist debate, with a few exceptions. Uh, Michael Dorff, for example, has an article about why you shouldn't decide this matter according to original meaning. But other than that, with a few exceptions, both sides of this debate are arguing original meaning. So one has to ask oneself why. Um, the most obvious reason, I think, and this is the reason why I think a Supreme Court opinion in this field will be an originalist opinion, regardless of how it comes out, um, as will the dissenting opinions also be originalist opinions. And I think the reason simply is that this is an area, unlike almost any other area, in which the Supreme Court is writing on a blank slate. You don't have a hundred years of bad non-originalist doctrine to follow. You've got almost zero doctrine to follow. And this sort of, in some sense, this sort of demonstrates the primacy of originalism, that when there is no doctrine and precedent to stand in the way, the court really does instinctively move into an originalist mode and not a non-originalist mode. So it's kind of a practicing uh, vindication of originalism, as do non-originalists who oppose gun rights under the Second Amendment. They also argue almost exclusively in an originalist fashion. Um, now, one last little thing in terms of background for those of you who are not involved, or sort of don't keep up with the literature in this field. Um, as, you know, as you may know, when you went to law school, there was virtually no scholarship on the, on the meaning of the Second Amendment, the original meaning of the Second Amendment, to speak of until the 1980s when there was a boom of scholarship that defended the conclusion that the Second Amendment does, in fact, protect an individual right and not the right of states to form a militia. Um, these scholars, these individual rights scholars, had sort of the field to themselves for a while. And then in the 1990s, there was a, um, or actually, I think it's the 1990s? Or was it 2000? I think the late 1990s, there was a reaction on the part of uh, those who oppose individual rights. And a, another boom, mini boomlet of scholarship emerged on the other side of the issue. One of the persons who was a participant in this uh, scholarly productivity is on our panel today, uh, David Yasky, who wrote a wonderful piece 
that appeared in the Michigan Law Review. David, uh, I first met David when he was a professor at Brooklyn Law School. He now has gone on to uh, bigger and better things. He's a council member um, in the New York uh, in the New York City Council, and uh, the, and and I noticed that from his bio it says that the Democratic Leadership Council. Uh, named Yasky one of the top 10, 100 new Democrats to watch. Now, I think if the Bush administration had said that about you, David, um, you might have, you know, gotten nervous. But uh, I think we'll all, we'll, we'll all watch you now from now on. I mean, since we've been told by the, the uh, DLC that we're supposed to watch you, we will keep a close eye on you from now on, um, uh, starting today. So at any rate, David is going to uh, reprise his, um, his, his previous work on the Second Amendment, maybe advance the ball a bit, and then we're very privileged to have one of the nation's foremost authorities on the Second Amendment, uh, Nelson Lund, who is the Patrick Henry Professor of Constitutional Law and the, and the Second Amendment, it's in his very chair title, at George Mason University School of Law. So you can't do much better for a program on the Second Amendment to get someone whose chair is in the Second Amendment. And you will see, t when you hear both of the presentations, you'll see why both of these gentlemen are justly famous. So um, we didn't actually discuss who goes first. Did you guys I decide? Think we, I think we were going to have me go first. Okay. I don't really care. So I'm the moderator, and everyone here knows how moderate I am. So it's my job to keep order with these unruly uh, gentlemen here, and, and I will do the best I can. So, um, uh, Nelson. I want to thank you. I want to begin by uh, reiterating Randy's recommendation of David's uh, Michigan Law Review article, which, in my opinion, is usually the most interesting and probably also the best article that's been written on his side of the debate. Uh, so it's a real pleasure to be uh, here with him today. Um, the D.C. statute now before the Supreme Court forbids almost all civilians to possess handguns in their own homes. Rifles and shotguns are permitted, but they must be kept unloaded and either disassembled or secured with a trigger lock, making them useless for self-defense. The only significant Supreme Court precedent is United States versus Miller, which was decided in 1939. In that case, the court upheld a federal law that prohibited the interstate transportation of unregistered short-barreled shotguns. The court's opinion was ambiguous, but it seemed to indicate that the Second Amendment covers only those types of weapons whose possession or use has some reasonable relationship to the preservation or efficiency of a well-regulated militia. Most courts have read Miller to mean that the Second Amendment protects a collective right whose purpose is to enable the state governments to maintain their militias as a political counterweight to the federal armed forces. The D.C. Circuit in the, in the Heller case, was called Parker Below, concluded on the contrary that the Second Amendment protects the right of individual Americans to possess firearms for self-defense, and it struck down the D.C. statute. I'm confident that the court will adopt the individual right interpretation. The collective right theory has been so frequently and thoroughly discredited that I can hardly believe the justices will embarrass themselves by adopting it. The court may also strike down the D.C. statute, but I'm somewhat less confident about this. There is a facially plausible argument for upholding this gun control law, and today I want to focus on why that argument is wrong. Untenable though it is, the collective right theory responded to a genuine puzzle. The Second Amendment's preamble refers to the importance of a well-regulated militia, 
which forces one to ask what this could have to do with the right of the people to keep and bear arms. One usually thinks of constitutional rights as obstacles to regulation, not spurs to regulation. The D.C. Circuit sought to resolve this puzzle by emphasizing, as the Supreme Court had observed in Miller, that the founding generation expected civilians to have private ownership of the weapons that they would need when called upon to perform their civic duty as militiamen. Now that point is historically accurate, but what does it imply? One possible inference might be that the Second Amendment protects the private possession of weapons only to the extent necessary to give civilians a stock of weapons suitable for use while serving in the militia. And what duties would militiamen be expected to perform? Military duties, of course, and probably also some law enforcement functions, but maybe only those of a quasi-military nature, such as suppressing insurrections and riots. And perhaps the militia could also be expected to respond spontaneously to certain kinds of political emergencies, say, by providing armed resistance to an attempted coup d'etat, or by establishing order if the government were paralyzed after a natural disaster. In all these activities, rifles and shotguns would be the most obviously useful weapons for militiamen to bring with them from home. But the D.C. statute permits civilians to possess rifles and shotguns, along with the requisite ammunition. Why, then, would the Second Amendment require more than what the D.C. statute already allows? The D.C. Circuit believed that this question was answered by Miller in the italicized statement at the end of this passage. It is not within judicial notice that a short-barreled shotgun is any part of the ordinary military equipment or that its use could contribute to the common defense. The D.C. Circuit found that handguns meet this test and that the government, therefore, may not ban them. Now, it's certainly true that handguns are part of ordinary military equipment and that their use could contribute to the common defense. But that can also be said about lots of other weapons, fully automatic rifles, for example, as well as shoulder-fired rockets and missiles and grenades. Such weapons, moreover, have considerably more potential usefulness in standard militia activities than handguns do. Accordingly, unless the justices conclude that we all have a right to keep machine guns and rockets in the home, they will be forced to replace the Miller test with something new. The court may be tempted to say that permitting civilians to possess mechanically disabled rifles and shotguns is enough to fulfill the putatively militia-centric purpose of the Second Amendment. That would be a serious mistake, because the purpose of the Second Amendment is broader than its prefatory language may suggest. It's self-evident that the Second Amendment's preambular phrase alludes to a reason for guaranteeing the right of the people to keep and bear arms. But this does not mean that it is the sole or even primary purpose. The text went through several revisions in the first Congress, in the course of which the language became focused with increasing clarity on protecting a personal individual right that is not necessarily connected with militia duties. The final text, moreover, along with the relevant history, shows that the preparatory language has much less legal significance than one might initially expect. The most significant grammatical feature of the Second Amendment is that its preamble is an absolute phrase, often called an ablative absolute or nominative absolute. Such constructions are grammatically independent of the rest of the sentence, 
and they do not qualify any word in the operative clause to which they're appended. The usual function of absolute constructions is to convey some information about the circumstances surrounding the statement in the main clause. Another significant grammatical feature of the Second Amendment is that its operative clause is a command. Because no word in that command is grammatically qualified by the prefatory assertion, the Second Amendment has exactly the same meaning that it would have had if the preamble had been omitted, or indeed if the preamble is demonstrably false. Consider a simple everyday example. Suppose that a dean announces the teacher being ill, class is canceled. Nothing about the dean's prefatory phrase, including its truth or falsity, can qualify or modify the operative command. If the teacher called in sick to watch a ball game, the cancellation of the class remains unaffected. If the dean was secretly diverting the teacher to work on a special project, still there will be no class. If someone misunderstood a phone message and inadvertently misled the dean into thinking the teacher would be absent, the dean's order is not thereby modified in the least. The Second Amendment's grammatical structure is identical, and so are the consequences. Whatever a well-regulated militia may be, or even if no such thing exists, the right of the people to keep and bear arms is not to be infringed. What's more, whether or not such a militia can actually contribute to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms remains unaffected. Indeed, even if it could be proved beyond all doubt that disarming the people is necessary to the security of a free state, still the right of the people to keep and bear arms would remain completely unchanged. The Second Amendment protects the right of the people to keep and bear arms, grammatically unqualified by any militia limitation. Another clear textual indication that the Second Amendment's preamble does not limit its operative language is provided by the non-congruence of the militia and the people. The militia is, and always has been, a small subset of the people whose right to keep and bear arms is protected by the Second Amendment. Most obviously, women were not part of the 18th century militia, although they have always been citizens and thus part of the people. For the same reason that women have always been covered by the First Amendment's right of the people to assemble and petition for redress of grievances, and by the Fourth Amendment's right of the people to be secure from unreasonable searches and seizures, women have always had the same Second Amendment rights as men. Now, even if one supposed without any evidence, that the people referred to in the First, Second, and Fourth Amendments included only those citizens with full political rights, thus excluding women at the time of the framing, the militia and the people would still remain substantially non-congruent. Under the Militia Act of 1792, for example, the militia included lots of men who did not have full political rights, and the law exempted lots of men who did have full political rights. Furthermore, nothing in the Constitution purports to forbid Congress from exempting everyone from militia duties. If Congress effectively abolished the militia by enacting such a universal exemption with the right of the people to keep and bear arms, thereby banish, that would obviously be absurd. Thus, the text of the Constitution compels the conclusion that the right of the people to keep and bear arms is not dependent on its contributing to the goal of a well-regulated militia. Still, it would seem that protecting the right to arms must have something to do with the well-regulated militia. 
let's pay attention once again to the language of the Constitution. One obvious way for a militia to be well-regulated is to be well-trained or well-disciplined as a military organization. And the framers of the Second Amendment no doubt meant to conjure thoughts of such an organization. The Second Amendment, however, added absolutely nothing to Congress's almost plenary Article I authority to provide for military training and discipline. Furthermore, the term well-regulated has a broader meaning that's actually more relevant in this context. To see why, note that the Second Amendment does not authorize any regulations at all. This, this fact highlights something that may not be immediately obvious to readers conditioned by experience with the modern Leviathan. The term well-regulated does not imply heavy regulation or more regulation. On the contrary, it's perfectly possible for the government to engage in excessive regulation or inappropriate regulation, and this is just what the Second Amendment forbids. The original Constitution gave Congress virtually unlimited authority to regulate the militia, and the Second Amendment simply forbids one kind of inappropriate regulation among the infinite possible regulations that Congress might be tempted to enact under its necessary and proper authority. What is that one kind of inappropriate regulation? Disarming the citizens from among whom any genuine militia must be constituted. Though it has little legal significance, the Second Amendment's prefatory comment served an important political purpose at the time. The Anti-Federalists had strongly opposed the massive increase of centralized military power conferred by Article I. The Federalists who controlled the First Congress, however, were completely unwilling to satisfy Anti-Federalist sentiment by actually subtracting from the federal government's military authority. But that did not mean that fears about the possible abuse of this new federal power should be treated disrespectfully. The words of praise for the militia in the Second Amendment are best understood as a sop to the popular fear of standing armies and to the widespread nostalgia for the old militia system that had once provided or seemed to provide an alternative to such armies. That explains both why the preambular language was included and why the amendment was so carefully drafted to ensure that the right of the people to keep and bear arms is not legally dependent in any way on its actually contributing to a well-regulated militia. This kind of political gesture was not unique. The framers of the Bill of Rights did exactly the same thing in the Tenth Amendment, as the Supreme Court has acknowledged. Like the Tenth Amendment, the Second Amendment's homage to the militia was simply meant to serve as a reassuring truism. Now, if the purpose of the Second Amendment is not exclusively or even primarily to facilitate or maintain a well-regulated militia, what broader purpose does it have? That purpose emerges readily from the Constitution's founding principles. Those principles were articulated by all of the political theorists most widely cited by the founding generation and summed up in the Declaration of Independence. The principles were repeated over and over again in proposals for a federal Bill of Rights, in early state constitutions, and in public statements of the time. The key principle is the centrality of the natural right of self-defense and self-preservation. And it has the important corollary that citizens have a right to protect themselves from the violent criminals whom the government cannot or will not bring under control. To take just one example from a legal authority who was extremely influential and popular in America, 
Blackstone called the right of self-defense the primary law of nature. Blackstone also characterized the English right to arms as a public allowance under due restrictions of the natural right of resistance and self-preservation when the sanctions of society and laws are found insufficient to restrain the violence of oppression. Note that Blackstone makes no distinction between oppression by the government and oppression that the government fails to prevent. If anything, his language seems to refer more easily to the ineradicable phenomenon of violent crime experienced by all societies than to the extraordinary instances of governmental oppression that call for armed resistance. The Second Amendment is our Constitution's most direct legal expression of Blackstone's insight that in vain would the primary natural rights be declared, ascertained and protected by the dead letter of the laws, if the Constitution had provided no other method to secure their actual enjoyment. It would not be easy to find a more vivid illustration of Blackstone's point than the District of Columbia, where every effort has been made to disarm the civilian population. According to what Blackstone called the dead letter of the laws, personal security must be very well assured in a city where almost nobody except agents of the government is authorized to possess an operable firearm. The reality is rather different, which is why the Second Amendment is no less important than other provisions of the Bill of Rights. It is no more frightening or outdated, and it's equally deserving of robust judicial enforcement. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, and um, <clears throat> uh, Professor Lund uh, was very complimentary. Uh, the, the reality is, <clears throat> just agreeing to appear on a panel on a panel with me is, is really a compliment because uh, uh, Professor Lund really is the preeminent. Um, expert on the history and the, um, and the jurisprudence of the Second Amendment. I, I do much more. Uh, we were talking at lunch. Uh, you, you referred to the to lawyer's history. I, I do politician's history, which is even, <laughs> that's even a step below. Um, but uh, nonetheless, since I, I do have a different perspective, recognizing the, the knowledge gap, and nonetheless, I've got to try and, and put my different perspective forward. Um, I am here as, as an originalist. I, uh, my, to the extent I'm not a, uh, a full-fledged scholar, but I, uh, to the extent I would lay claim to a theory of interpretation, uh, it would absolutely be the, that our job as interpreters of this document is to uh, enforce the intentions of the framework, you know, those who wrote and, and ratified it. Uh, so I agree with Professor Barnett, and I agree uh, with, with him also that the Second Amendment is a just uh, endlessly fascinating test case uh, for, for one's theory of originalism, um, in part because of the, the lack of doctrine, although uh, what, what kind of interested me about it was, uh, there, while there's very little Supreme Court doctrine, there was, were, were a... Um, there have been a number of lower court, circuit court, and district court opinions, um, all of which had come to the very same, you know, almost all of which had come to the same conclusion using pretty much the same method of analysis and, and used that analysis to 
you know, uphold any uh, gun regulation brought before them. And I thought, well, they can't all be wrong. See, this is this to me is the puzzle for modern day originalists. And I, and I heard Professor Barnett refer to, you know, 100 years of uh, doctrine kind of cluttering up our thinking. Um, I guess for me, I kind of came at this with the, the assumption that the courts, you know, these judges can't just be that dense. They must be on to something. And I think in the Second Amendment case, we see that they are, and, um, and we, we can understand how they are. So let me tell you why I think that. Um, and to me, the, the original challenge is, you know, it would be hard enough to try and interpret a statute and figure out what, what does, what would the framers, how would the framers meant for it to apply to this case? You know, the uh, no vehicles in the park, does that mean bicycles or not? All right, and it wasn't, you know, not clear, wasn't addressed, we've got to go back and look at that. That challenge on its own is fun and, you know, for us fun and, and important. Um, what makes it so uh, fun and challenging in the case of Constitution, of course, is it's not just that. We've got to do that. And then we have to figure out how to integrate that meaning into a whole document that has changed over time. Uh, you know, there have undeniably uh, been a number of amendments, some more important than others. And, and part of what I want to argue is that the 14th Amendment and the changes in constitutional structure um, since the Bill of Rights was adopted uh, are part of the challenge. We have, to, we have to understand how the Bill of Rights interacts with these subsequent changes. And that, that's what makes originalism so um, fun. So, okay, Second Amendment. Um, the originalist, uh, my view, method, text, the, our, our mantra of text, history, structure. Let's just do each one very quickly. Uh, you know, Professor Lund has taken us through the text of the amendment. The couple points I'd want to make. Um, let's start with the preamble. Right? A well-regulated militia being necessary security of a free state. Now, I agree there's something um, it, it feels tendentious to say that's we, we have to read that as the entirety of the you know, legal force of the amendment, that it's all about militia because it, it, the way, for, for many of the reasons Professor Lund uh, sets up. But just the same to ignore it and read it out seems to me equally tendentious, tendentious and you know, unappealing for a genuine originalist. That those that has to mean something. I think those words are very clearly a not just a clue, but a direct statement of the purpose of the amendment and the purpose that we as interpreters have to enforce. And I remember the the teacher being ill, classes canceled. Example not quite right because that's you know uh, there's no doubt the class that class has been canceled, whether it should have been or should not have been. So I, I think the analogy would be something that said you know, in the teacher's handbook or the rules of the school, as teachers may sometimes become ill, class is subject to cancellation. I think a fair reading of that would say a teacher who cancels class to, uh, you know, go bowling or go to the ball game actually has not followed the handbook. It's not, handbook's not written as clearly as we like, but as teachers may sometimes become ill, class is subject to cancellation. I would read that to say I'm supposed to can I can cancel class when I become sick and not otherwise. And, and, and I think the same thing is operative here. And it's not just the preamble. The second part, you know, right to keep and bear arms. There is 
plenty of evidence uh, that that you can that uh, would lead you to say when you go through it all that bear arms itself is a military phrase. One of the uh, one of the other authors on the Second Amendment, I'll steal his phrase. Uh, he, he writes, "Bear arms is such a synonym for waging war that Shakespeare calls civil war self-born arms." That's to bear arms means to wage war. That's what that's what uh, even the operative you know language uh, refers to. So the text of the amendment to me. Uh, is, is much more consistent with a reading that says we are the, the purpose of this is to enable the states to preserve their militia much closer than the purpose of this is to allow people to, to uh, uh, keep firearms for any reason that they want to, any private reason, and particularly to protect them against crime and so forth. Um, text. History. Uh, George Mason is doing something fascinating. I learned at lunch that uh, if my daughters are interested in going to law school, which you know, given my example, they probably won't be. But but if they are, uh, I'm going to urge them to take a look at George Mason because I, they're they're going to start this year uh, with a prerequisite course to constitutional law that is simply study of the Constitution, as I understood it, reading you know from the Magna Carta to the debates around the founding and uh, uh, the you know the Constitutional <coughs> Convention and the Federalist Papers. Um, what the students in that class will see, I suspect. Uh, is that one of the you know four or five central issues for the founders was should the federal government be allowed to have a standing army and what should we do about the fear, our fear that this new federal government will have a standing army when you go back at the his and look at the history um, this just leaps out at you I mean it's right up there with how do we weigh, how do we balance big states small states should how long should the term of the president be? There are a few issues that recur again and again. Standing army is one of them, right? Because what are they afraid of? And, and they have a very clear distinction in the founding worldview between a professional standing army of you know, hired guns and a citizen militia, the good, solid, Republican uh, citizen militia. And they're worried about a standing army. They, they have a debate. On the one hand, our folks, you know, including George Washington, people who say, hey, let's be realistic, we need an army. If we're going to be invaded, we can't just rely on militia. We need a professional, we need professional soldiers to defend ourselves. On the other side are people who say, if you have a standing army, they're going to, the president's going to use it. They're going to go on all kinds of foreign adventures in all parts of the globe and, you know, in search of who knows what and waste our treasure and our blood in service of those foreign adventures. Standing army bad for that reason. I'm not trying to be topical or anything. Um, more, you know, more so, standing army leads directly to tyranny. If it's sitting there, the temptation is just too great for a president to say, you know, terms over. I don't think so. Uh, or maybe a little more sophisticated version. Part of the country decides it wants to oppress the other. Maybe the northern half wants to oppress the other, the southern half, and that standing army is going to be there, and they're going to use it to try and do that. Not a crazy fear. Uh, happened, obviously. So uh, so that's on the one side, is we don't want the federal government to have standing army. On the other hand, on the other side, people say we need it. for, for to, to have a, a true uh, country, we need an army. So they have a characteristically brilliant compromise. Compromise is, we will allow 
the Constitution will allow the, the federal government to have people who wanted no, no standing army. They rejected that for the George Washington argument that we might need it. But they said we so allow them to have a standing army, the new national government, but we will, tr we will design this Constitution as best we can to uh, discourage the, a standing army, to make, it, to make presidents as unlikely as possible to, to create one and to use it. And we do that by giving them the authority to call forth the militia when they need it and use that as the army. That is the compromise in the Constitution. Goes out for ratification debates. This is one of the main areas of weakness. People say the anti-terrorist argument is, well, you know, they say there's no stand. And, and before we get to that, I, I just want to read you from the Ferris papers because it, it, it tells you, I just want to read you a little bit of a long passage from Ferris 46. It says, let a regular army... This is Madison saying why you shouldn't be worried that the federal government can have a standing army. Let a regular army fully equal to the resources of the country be formed, and let it be entirely at the devotion of the federal government. Still, it would not be going too far to say that the state governments with the people on their side would be able to repel the danger. The highest number to which, according to the best computation, a standing army can be carried in any country does not exceed one hundredth part of the whole number of souls at one twenty-fifth figure. Calculations proportion would not yield more than 25 or 30,000 men. To these would be opposed a militia amounting to near half a million of citizens with arms in their hands, officered by men chosen from among themselves, fighting for their common liberties and united and conducted by governments possessing their affections and confidence. It may well be doubted whether a militia thus circumstanced could ever be conquered by such a proportion of regular troops, regular meaning standing army, professional. Besides the advantage of being armed, which the Americans possess over the people of almost every other nation, the existence of subordinate governments to which the people are attached, the states, and by which the militia officers are appointed, forms a barrier against the enterprises of ambition more insurmountable than any which a simple government of any form can admit of. I, I, I want to read that because to me that shows you what they're... That, that, just, that helps me see how strongly... They, the founders felt about the preservation of a militia. No exaggeration to say they, to them, the liberty of the country, the survival of the country, depended on there, be, there being a continuation of the state militia as a counterweight, an alternative to a standing army, so the president won't need it, and if they, if they do go ahead and make one, a counterforce to it to ward off the you know, civil war tyranny uh, fears that, that, that I talked about. This is so critical. They go out to, for ratification. And the argument is made, and it has some force. You know, you say you're against standing army, but you let it be. And how can you, uh, and, and uh, there will be no militia. The there'll be a standing army that will take the place of the militia. The Second Amendment, I submit, was a response to this concern. It was very, it was absolutely, and, and Professor Lund said it was, <coughs> That language, the preamble was kind of a soft to the anti-federalist worries about a militia. Not a soft. That the, to me, that was that was what this amendment was for. It was to assure the populace that the state militias uh, would continue. That was its goal. That was its purpose. The text says that. The history and the history meshes so beautifully with the structure of states. That's what that passage is about. That the we're creating this national government, but we, we intend for the states to be the main loci of government, both, the, both um, internal regulation and militarily. And 
the, the militia structure is a critical part of this. So when, when I go back and look at the text history and structure, I see a Second Amendment that is clearly about continuing the state militia. Now, that doesn't answer the question for me of the D.C. gun ban because we have to then look, you know, look ahead and say, you know, what does this mean today? Because we, we live in a very different structure than the founders put in place. Most obviously, we have a 14th Amendment that was a direct challenge to the, uh, to the state-centered notion that the founders put in place. Um, we have a not just a federal standing army, but a draft, which I argue, and we could, you know, we'll save that for another day, would have been plainly unconstitutional um, to, the, to the founders, a federal draft. That was what the militia could do. They insist on service. The federal government would have to rely on volunteers. Uh, and, of course, the Supreme Court was ready to find it uh, unconstitutional uh, at the beginning of the Civil War. It never got to it. Um, uh, but one of the changes that we have now is we have a federal go- government with a, ma- with a mammoth standing army and, and the, the uh, ability to draft citizens into that army if they want to. And we have the you know, concomitant growth of an enormous federal government that regulates every area of domestic life wholly in, in contravention of the original uh, founder's scheme. How do we tr- take those founding, the founding values of a decentralized military that will protect us against foreign adventurers, that will um, guard against tyranny? How do, we, how do we make that meaningful in today's structure? To me, that is the challenge that this case is an opportunity for the courts to begin to explore. And whether they will do that, you know, I, I'm not as uh, uh, hopeful about um, but it, I guess it's my hope that we as the scholarly community will help them. And, and, and I'll just, the last thing I'll say is, you know, I did, I started by saying the courts had been consistent, they had, and, and they'd basically, I think, gotten it right. The Miller, you saw the, you know, the key quotation from the one Supreme Court case that interprets Second Amendment, the Miller case that links, uh, you know, I don't have the uh, uh, language of, at my fingertips, but it says, Right. The, the, itali- the language Professor Lund italicized in the absence well, in the absence of any evidence tending to show possession or use of a short barrel shotgun, and this is the language Professor Lund italicized, has some reasonable relationship to the preservation or efficiency of a well regulated m- militia. The Supreme Court in its one kind of glancing look at this, you know, honed right in on it. They said they, they looked at the Second Amendment, they realized what it was about. They said it's about preserving the militia. Um, and, the, and the courts had said that along until they started to get this, this um, help from the scholarly community um, <laughs> pointing it in the other direction. Uh, but the, the challenge really is figuring out how to take those genuine founding values of a break on overuse of the military and a protection against militarization domestically and make those real today. And I, I don't, I don't, I'm not here with any... A uh, simple answer to do that, my, you know, way of doing it would be, uh, uh, you know, an academic and irrelevant way. Um, the only way we're going to do that is by courts kind of, you know, in the way that they do so beautifully, kind of case by case, hearing these arguments um, and beginning to weave them into the fabric. But that is would be a, a way to make the Second Amendment meaningful today uh, rather than graft onto it a very different meaning 
of let anybody who wants to have a gun because it's it's a part of their liberty. That's not what the that's there's, there's, that's not what this history was about. So I thank you very much for the opportunity to talk to you about this, and uh, I look forward to some back and forth. That's well, a uh, a well-regulated debate should uh, have as little interference from the moderator as possible. I will note that without any coordination from the moderator, uh, both speakers took within one minute of each other in terms of the length of their presentations. So this was a self-regulated, well-regulated <laughs> debate. So I thought I would give Nelson an opportunity to respond and then David an opportunity to respond again. Then we'll have, this has been a wonderful inter exchange, and I'm, I'm looking forward to it continuing. Uh, I really only have a couple of points. One with respect to the, to the question whether bare arms or keep and bear arms is an exclusively military uh, term. Um, in David's article, he has a very interesting empirical search of the early records uh, of our country in which he finds that um, all of the uses of the term bear arms had, had a military uh, connotation. I think he says denotation, but, 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 but certainly they were all had a military meaning. Um, there are some counterexamples, um, and more important, I think, Randy Barnett subsequently showed that all of these examples came up in contexts where military matters were under discussion. So, of course, when they use the term bear arms, when you're talking about a military issue, it's going to have a military meaning. And he found a, a later database, or a later database was you correct me if I'm making any mistakes here, uh, that, that went, that expanded the database where, where, where debates were about other things and found out that that wasn't uh, exclusively uh, the connotations of the term. I would, I would just, just what happened was is that uh, the database that David relied upon, uh, he accurately reported his, the findings. I replicated his findings. They were accurately, but that database subsequently was expanded to later years. And in the later years, um, the word bear arms was used in a non-military context. Uh, the other the other point I want to focus in a little bit on was uh, has to do with the history. Um, one of the strongest arguments on David's side of the debate, one of the weakest parts of my side of the debate, is the fact, and I think it is a fact, that that all of the discussions about the Second Amendment, uh, in one way or another, were related to the sphere of standing armies. Now, my explanation. Uh, for that is that's just what they were most worried about, but it, they chose language that went more broadly because they were implicitly assuming certain principles uh, that didn't need to be discussed because they were not the focus of the fears, and that's why I talk about the principles of the Declaration of Independence and self-defense and so on. Uh, but I certainly concede that the specific discussions about the Second Amendment all in one way or another implied what people were thinking about at the time. Their kind of original intent in this very naive sense, uh, the particular problem they were focused on was the problem of standing armies. It was not true, however, that this high regard for the militia as an alternative to standing armies uh, was universal. Uh, in the Federalist Number 29, for example, uh, Hamilton basically says this whole militia stuff is a bunch of romantic nonsense. Uh, you can't do it. You have to have a professional army. The basic principle of division of labor um, and people's aversion to paying in-kind taxes will ensure that the, the militia is just impossible to, to keep it up as a real military force, and this is all romantic nonsense. Uh, he, of course, proved to be right. Um, and uh, with respect to uh, 
uh, with respect to the question of whether they were really focused on a state-based militia. That gets a little complicated, uh, but uh, to, to say the least, it wasn't obvious that anything in the Constitution required that. The, the, the federal government was given plenary authority, virtually plenary authority over the militia, and uh, in uh, Houston versus Moore, in uh, I think around 1820, uh, the court uh, held that uh, that that uh, something like field preemption applied uh, to regulations of the militia when a state tried to punish a, somebody for uh, failing to to uh, to be called up, failing to follow an order to to, to report for federal service. Um, so that's that's really the, the the points I wanted to focus on with respect to the, uh, the the immediate remarks that David made, but lots of other things we could discuss if there are more questions. Uh, okay, uh, then I'll, I'll just a couple of things in response as well. Is you know on the text part, and I I don't want to overdo the text part because I I, th I don't think that one can um, answer. I think most hard questions you can't just look at the text and you know, as the words and and come to any satisfying conclusion. You have to go beyond. So I, d I don't think that, but I do think it's worth spending a fair bit of time on the words. That's what they use. And there absolutely were counterexamples. I think I, that, that uh, the data, that particular data, I make a claim that, you know, within um, the, the ratification debates, there were no, you know, that was the only use. Uh, and, and the first, uh, Early Congresses, but I, I, you know, I recognize there, the, there's a Pennsylvania Constitution that used the, the phrase "bear arms" in a way that um, clearly talked about hunting as well. It's not, it's not the, um, there, it's not that there are no counterexamples. I, I just was arguing that that's the, you know, that's the dominant meaning. And to me, the, the best place to look at is the original draft of the First Amendment. James Madison, of course, right, drafted 12 a Bill of Rights with 12. Uh, Components, 12 amendments. Uh, two of them got uh, dropped, and we wound up with the, the, the 10 that got adopted. And some of them were changed around a little bit. His original draft of the what became the Second Amendment reads as follows: The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. A well-armed and well-regulated militia being the best security of a free country. But the second, you know, the preamble second for what that's worth. But in either case, I mean, it's that roughly the same, that it's the right and kind of an explanation of why we're doing the right. Uh, and then there's a third part, but no person religiously scrupulous of bearing arms shall be compelled to render military service in person. Plainly, bear, bearing arms there meaning, uh, as he says later, render military service in person. Doesn't mean hunting. Doesn't mean, Bearing arms there means is a reference to uh, you know, Quaker conscientious objectors who don't want to fight. This was dropped, interestingly. This third part this, of the Bill of Rights was, uh, of the Second Amendment was dropped out of fear that it would allow the uh, federal courts to start saying who's allowed to be in a militia and who isn't, and they thought that should be solely an area of state, uh, of state concern. But uh, just as far as the text goes, I find that the, mo the most compelling evidence of how, how should we look at these words, bear arms? Madison using them in the same amendment um, in a way that that's that military. But um, the other part I, w I want to respond to is on the, because the, the Professor Lund has, has framed the debate and, and Professor Barnett did in his introduction about 
you know, individual rights versus collective rights or uh, versus, you know, states' rights. And uh, I indeed, I think, lumped me in, the, in a group of people who are opposed to individual rights, which uh, I had not previously thought of myself as. But, but I, I think that I don't, I don't like that framing. I, I just want to suggest that that's, it's, it's not a useful way to frame it. Um, of course, the amendment protects individual rights in the sense that an individual can, uh, any individual American can use, can rely on the amendment to protect um, himself or herself against federal government action that is contrary to it, right? In that sense, it's an individual right. It's not something that only a state can can uh, enforce in a, in a federal court. Uh, I, I don't think that's interesting. I mean, at the, every part of the Constitution that's true for the separation of powers is an individual right in that sense, right? Chada says, you can't deport me because the way you're trying to deport me violates the Constitution. So I, as an individual, am coming to court saying this is a, this, uh, you know, structure of, of deportation violates separation of powers. That doesn't make separation of powers an individual rights concept or collective rights concept. It, uh, of course, individuals can Mark can go into court and rely on everything in the Constitution. Um, what's what's the, the real issue is what is the purpose of the right? Is it to protect individual firearm ownership for recreation, hunting, self-defense? Or is it to protect ownership related to the militia, related to that state, you know, decentralized military? Uh, I think that that second one is far closer to the original intent and is the original intent. And then, as I say, you know, our challenge is working with that today. You want another round? And then we'll this is very, very quickly. Okay. With respect to the conscientious objector clause, I think there's one point I disagree about, about the reason that it was taken out. Uh, there was some debate in the House. Uh, there were various, re uh, various kinds of objections, some of which contradicted each other to that clause. In the end, the House didn't take it out. It was taken out in the Senate, and we have no record of the debates. Uh, so we, don't, we can't say with any assurance why they took it out. Um, I, I believe that for whatever reason they took it out, the effect was to make the, uh, make the, the final text uh, more closely aligned with my interpretation, more clearly consistent with my interpretation. Um, the, other, the only other thing I want to say is I, I think that David has quite properly, uh, almost perfectly framed the real debate, which is what is the purpose of the Second Amendment? Because from that starting point, a lot will follow. Not everything, but a lot will follow uh, as far as judicial doctrine. Okay, I think it's time to uh, get some of uh, your participation here. I apologize uh, not being able to call on everyone by name, but if you do, if I do call on you, could you please state your name and, and what school you're from so we can know? So let's start right over here. Lee Frank from Michigan State. And this question's for David. David, a couple times you mentioned about how you know, there's a long string of cases, beginning with the Miller case, where the courts came down on your position. And that you thought it was intuitive that they might that they would be on to something, and, and my question is: Isn't there good reason to question? Aren't there at least two reasons why the courts, uh, why one would be suspect of their judgments? One being that the New Deal Court, maybe among its other virtues, was not uh, its ability to do good historical research, and secondly, maybe they had policy reasons for reaching that the result that that you argue the Miller Court and later courts did. 
Um, sure. Uh, the you know, I suppose on both of those, uh, the, I guess the New Deal Court was uh, not in the habit of what we here would think of as um, serious originalist inquiry. Um, I guess I think for good reason, but, but we, we, we put that aside for a minute. But um, so that's that's true as far as Miller goes. Uh, nonetheless, you know, I would say that. And, and, and Miller is a it's, it's a thin you know read to hang a huge amount of, of argument and weight on uh, as um, I don't think uh, Professor Owen point out but people point out in the articles on this it was the the uh, lawyer representing Mr. Miller didn't even show up for argument it was not a really uh, thoroughly considered case, and it's a pretty short, uh, not cursory, but it's, it's, it's not an exhaustively written or thought through a Supreme Court opinion. So I get all that. Um, however, to the extent that they did, you know, they took the goal, I think, as what was what's the original intent, and that was what they saw. And I think, I think that that made some sense. So that, as far as Miller goes, and as far as the, as the later case go, you know, some extent they're just relying on Miller. Some said they may have policy, uh, sure, goals. Um, I get that. Nonetheless, though, I, I guess I would, the kind of consistent and, in, and throughout many, you know, many judges looking at this and saying what I see is militia, whether we can kind of, you know, push it this way or that way at the edges, I think that should have some weight for us. That's That's the... Entirety of what I what I want to say. If I could just oh sure just add one thing with respect to the lower court opinions post Miller. One thing that's striking about them is just how appallingly bad the reasoning is in those cases up until fairly recently when I think the academic debate forced the judges to, to be. But it is just appallingly bad, including just some simple things like grotesque, ridiculous interpretations of Miller. Um, I mean, it's just it's just very bad stuff, which is one reason why I don't think we should put too too much weight on the idea. Well, if all these judges said this, it must be something to it. You know, it's undeveloped for sure. Um, I just I think, and this I really I, I think is a broader kind of challenge for the originalist community is well, for goodness, you know, everything from you know Roe and Brown. Uh, to the smaller, I guess, Second Amendment stuff. If, if if one says, okay, let's say it can't all be wrong, so how do we have an originalist practice that doesn't find, you know, the vast bulk of contemporary Supreme Court doctrine to be wrong? That's, you know, that's pretty. That's the challenge. And Second Amendment is a particular example of that. I'll say all of Roe was wrong. <laughs> Rob Nadelson, University of Montana. Is there any useful information at all that survives that comes from the debates of the legislatures that ratified the Bill of Rights? Uh, what kind of thing did you have in mind? Well, debates that would express um, their interpretation of the meaning of the Second Amendment. Uh, yes, I think so. Um, there, as, as 
David pointed out, uh, the anti-federalists were quite unhappy with Article One, and uh, they consistently were. Uh, are you talking about the? No, I'm talking about the ratification of the Second. Oh, the ratification of the Second Amendment. Then. I mean, I mean the, the legislatures that ratified the Bill of Rights. No, not that I know. No. Say so, yeah. First of all, it's just harder to uh, you know, uh, it's harder to re I, it's harder to research. Um, you have to do a lot more work than uh, lazy people are prepared to do to, to do that research. But from but I I looked at what I could and, and found zero. Recently, I've been involved in an ongoing exchange with Kurt Lash uh, from Loyola on the meeting of the Ninth Amendment. And one of the things that uh, we've been discussing is the debate over the ratification of the Bill of Rights in the Virginia House of Delegates. And one of the things that comes out, which was sort of unknown to me until relatively recently, is that they originally disapproved um, the Tenth Amendment, uh, the Ninth and Tenth Amendments. Um, and the reason their objection to the Tenth Amendment was the addition of the word or to the people at the end of the Tenth Amendment connoted to them an individual empowerment and not a protection of the states, that it, that it completely took away. They had proposed, Virginia had previously proposed wording just like the Tenth Amendment without those words. And then when those words were added, they then opposed it initially on the grounds that it took away all force from the protection of the states that had previously put there because the people was the people of the, would obviously be the people of the preamble, the people of the United States, and those are individuals, and that's not what we had in mind when we proposed amendments. So, um, and, and the whole debate was all over the idea of this people being somewhat of an individual notion, individualistic notion, and it wasn't the state's right. So it was kind of interesting. It's tangentially related to the Second Amendment, but they did approve the Second Amendment without, um, uh, that wasn't one of the amendments that they were objecting to. Yes, David? I know this is not a debate. Oh, wait, wait for the mic, maybe. I'm sorry. David Bernstein, uh, George Mason. Um, those debates about the D.C. gun ban, but uh, most of the draconian, the most draconian regulations we have on guns outside of D.C. had to be state uh, and especially local regulations. And I mean, D.C. is also a regulation, but of course it's a Fifth Amendment. Uh, the Fourteenth Amendment doesn't apply to D.C., so we're going to the Second Amendment itself. So to the extent we think that the Fourteenth Amendment incorporates somehow or protects rights uh, in the Bill of Rights, which um, Nelson may not, uh, but to the, extent, to the extent that we think that, uh, it does strike me, while I'm not an expert on the Second Amendment, uh, I know more about the 14th Amendment, it does strike me the history of the 14th Amendment is quite clear that to the extent uh, that there was discussion of the right to bear arms and, uh, in the, when they were discussing the 14th Amendment, and it was specifically related to violence against uh, uh, first abolitionists before the Civil War and after the Civil War, the freed slaves and their Republican supporters. And it strikes me that uh, a lot of this debate on the Second Amendment misses, you know, talks about militia, 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 but since most of the regulations that would be at issue are state regulations or local regulations, and there the historical evidence seems quite clear that they were talking about individual rights to protect oneself against Violence by by non-state actors and including the militia, including the militia, right? Uh, the, and also by state actors that uh, it's sort of if we go out outside the D.C. gun ban to the more typical regulation, we'll be finding that a lot of this is sort of irrelevant. If I say, you know, not irrelevant, but I mean, okay, that's a I think a, a brilliant right observation and and exactly right. Um, the we start with the what it mean. Uh, in 1789, and we go with 
And then we have to say, okay, we now also have a 14th Amendment and a, it's not just the, the words of the 14th Amendment, but the huge change in structure of the government that it you know, effected. Um, you know, and, and then, more controversially, um, you have the New Deal jurisprudence that, that creates a, you know, monstrously large federal government um, domestically. So how do you integrate all that? I agree is really the challenge. And you are, you're absolutely right that the um, uh, one, one way to go with that would be to say, uh, you know, <laughs> D.C. gun ban such as it is would have been fine, you know, uh, in 17... Uh, 94, but in 1874 wouldn't be because the, 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 we, we now we have to read it as saying um, wh what we're concerned about is allowing people to protect themselves against the against even the state governments, not just using the states to protect themselves against uh, federal tyranny. Well, out of fairness, I should I should add that David Yasky is proposing very different. Uh, different uh, theory of the 14th Amendment, uh, which is really extremely interesting um, and is not politicians or lawyers' history by any means. And he, <coughs> correct me if I'm wrong, but kind of flips that uh, in the opposite direction and argues that, uh, that while something like the D.C. gun ban may have been unconstitutional originally, by the time of the 14th Amendment and partially through the 14th Amendment, the military, the allocation of military authority by the Constitution had so changed uh, that you would get the opposite result. Uh, so there's, I think, room for interesting debates about that. Um, and, uh, of course, one of the reasons there hasn't been much discussion about incorporation is, I mean, what is there to discuss? It's substantive due process. So, uh, you know, you can say whatever you want, and the court will say whatever it wants. Uh, but one thing that is, that, that I think, your, your point is worth noting also for this reason, that I do think the, the inevitability of the incorporation question is going to be hanging over this case in the Supreme Court. The justices aren't going to forget or be unaware of the fact that if they strike down the statute under the Second Amendment, the incorporation issue is going to be coming their way. Uh, so I think it, it's worth emphasizing again that that, 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 that that issue is there and important. I, I just should note that the, that the examples of rights that were deemed to be privileges or immunities that comes through the debate of the 14th Amendment are, uh, there, there is no right that is more frequently mentioned as an example of the kind of right that the Privilege Immunities Clause is meant to protect than the right to keep and bear arms, uh, which is obviously outside the context of a militia at this point, um, and along with the freedom of speech and press. And the freedom of speech and press and the right to keep bear arms, that was the litany of what the framers of the 14th Amendment were most concerned about protecting uh, because those are the rights that had been and were continuing to be violated uh, in the South by the black codes. Um, so the fact that by the time the 14th Amendment has arrived, uh, it's protecting an individual right, it seems to be overwhelmingly established. I've seen very little argument on the other side of that. You'd have to then presuppose that there was a change in meaning that had happened since the founding to the 14th Amendment, and I've just seen no evidence of a change. You have the continued reassertion that the original meaning of the 14th Amendment was this militia-centric collective. That's a bad argument, but there's no evidence of it changing at any time, where it used to mean this and now it means this other thing. So the very fact that they would 
continue to talk about the right to keep and bear arms in the context of individuals in the 14th Amendment context is evidence, I think, even retrospective evidence of what the Second Amendment uh, meant. And I would also say that obviously it's the slaughterhouse cases that deprived us of the original meaning of the 14th Amendment with respect to the right to keep and bear arms, such that under current doctrine it would be be a due process clause issue, but under the original meaning of the 14th Amendment it would not be a due process clause issue. It would be a privileges or immunities clause question. Thank you. That was very moderate, Randy. (laughs) (laughs) Can I I just say a couple things? Sure. um, First, just I I really am glad Preston made a point about the Incorporation, because it's really, it's, as you think about this, that's, I think, uh, central. And we're thinking about if they do go, which I, if I got a bet, I guess I bet they affirm. But, you know, my, uh, my, my predictions are worth exactly zero. Um, but if they do, then, yes, there's, then they're going to have to really, they're going to have to confront this question. They're also going to have to confront, you know, a whole series of questions about, well, what is, you know, uh, reasonable regulation since uh, every First Amendment, Fourth Amendment, every amendments that we feel real strongly about um, allow government action that, you know, could be argued is contrary to them, but is time, place and manner or whatever it is. And, you know, just to get back to your kind of policy thing, it could be that also lower courts, yeah, maybe they want to uphold, they like gun control, they want to uphold it. I think that was your point. But, you know, maybe they also recognize if they go the other way, now they're going to be they're going to have to decide what are acceptable government regulations, and you're going to have you know the federal courts saying um, background check is okay, not okay, um, license requirements okay, not okay, and they realize that leads down a path of extensive judicial involvement in in this policy area that they may not be as excited about. So that's, that's just one. Um, you know, one point, and I mean, Professor Owens, I, I think that is a, I mean, uh, Professor Barnett, the, the point about the, um, you know, no visible change in meaning um, is a really strong one. I think um, there's no there's no question that, that for the, the people talking about the 14th Amendment, they see, they look at the Bill of Rights and read it as a, and read it very robustly, including the Second Amendment, in a kind of, um, you know, individual-oriented way, rather than the structural way that I would, uh, I would argue was originally conceived. Um, I don't know that that's evidence for, you know, what what the framers intended, um, and that we it hasn't changed since. Uh, you know, we have to assume that their understanding is the same as the framers. This is this is a really dormant issue for 70 years. So, uh, you know, I think that they are influenced by the, um, you know, kind of individual rights tenor of the of the times more so than by their history. Uh, but but you are you're I mean, but that's a, that's an argument worth um, thinking hard about. Right there. How, what time does this program wrap up? Five more minutes. Okay. Mike O'Shea from Oklahoma City University. Um, first, I just want to make a quick comment about David Yasky's presentation and 
sort of invite him to comment on that. Um, it made no mention of the right to keep arms. Um, there was a discussion of the meaning of bear arms, the original meaning of bear arms, but actually what the D.C. Circuit's invalidation of the D.C. gun bans rested on was, as Judge Silverman says, a violation of the right to keep arms. Um, and it's typical of many, many of the federal lower court opinions adopting collective rights type views of the Second Amendment also have no or cursory discussion of the right to keep arms, but, you know, whatever interpretive approach that is, it's not textualism. Um, and then the other, I had a, a question for Professor Lund. One of the aspects that seemed a little troublesome about his position, um, and Mr. Yasky sort of touched on this, is it really seems to minimize the effect of the prefatory clause of the Second Amendment. And in particular, I wonder whether um, Professor Lund is right to want to give up on the Miller test, because it seems to me that keeping the Miller test, the arms that Americans have an individual right to keep, are ones that have a reasonable relationship to a well-regulated militia, so that something like the federal assault weapons ban, the semi-automatic assault weapons ban, is like a core constitutional violation. It's not an extreme extension of the Second Amendment to strike that down. That's precisely what the Second Amendment was intended to prohibit the federal government from regulating. And if that is the reluctance to embrace the Miller test and therefore give a more satisfactory reading of the whole amendment, a result of the fear of incorporation, because it's one thing to say the federal government is heavily limited in its ability to regulate, you know, modern defensive conflict-type weaponry, but states and local jurisdictions can do that. That's a lot more politically plausible today than the problem with incorporation is. It means you can't strike down the federal, a renewal of the federal assault weapons ban without saying, Midtown Manhattan has to allow the possession of these weapons. And so is, is, is the fear of incorporation of the Second Amendment um, partially responsible for a reluctance of many individual rights scholars to say, yeah, Miller had the test for covered arms right? I think this will have to be the last responses before we, uh, if, you, if there are responses. Okay, on the, you know, key point, you're, you're, I concede the... Um, simplification that, that I was uh, indulging in to focus on the bear, on bear arms only. Uh, my argument, as you get, is that keep and bear arms is a phrase all itself. Keep, the keeping of arms was keeping arms necessary for bearing of arms. But I, that's, that is a, I agree with you, that's another step, and, and that, that step requires defending. Um, and there, that's where I, I, go quickly to the history structure part and get away from the text. Um, the, the, the other, you know, your other question was for Professor Lund, but just something more about Professor Barnett's point about, yeah, we here all, I'll bet you most people here would say, you know, kind of um, are surprised by Slaughterhouse and say, gee, you know, I would have expected to go differently and that we would have had a whole, you know, period, you know, of whole 60, 70 years of jurisprudence that was um, incorporation under privileges and immunities, and that was not the, uh, you know, it was a missed opportunity or was it whatever, a wrong choice, whatever it was. Um, and as suggested earlier, I, you know, I try and kind of take Slaughterhouse as a, as a kind of fact rather than as a question, as, as a variable, and, and, um, you know, explain uh, what happened there and, and that the post-Civil War jurisprudence 
rather than substitute my own. But, but you know, David Bernstein's kind of vision would have been plausible one, except that's not where the court went. And that is, again, that's, I guess, part of what, what makes the current um, question so rich and, and fascinating is, you know, they, they didn't go in that way. That's, that's my only point. Uh, well, on your other question, I'm not afraid of machine guns or incorporation personally, uh, but uh, I think it, it is true that, that, that nobody, I don't know about Stinger missiles, though, um, which would be very useful in a, if we got into a combat between you know, the armed citizenry and the federal government. Um, I don't think, though, that, that kind of these kind of fear things uh, really tell the whole story. The, re the reason that, 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 uh, um, that I don't think the Millet test is correct is I don't think it's faithful uh, to the original meaning of the, of the Constitution properly understood. And one thing you have to keep in mind is that when the Second Amendment was framed, First, there was real fear of a tyrannical federal government. Um, that we just no longer have um, to nearly the extent that we had then. But more important, the disproportion between federal military power and anything an armed citizenry could do has widened so dramatically. I mean, Madison could plausibly argue, as he did in Federalist Number 46, that you couldn't subdue the armed populace. Uh, that is, you know... Uh, a whole different story today, at least as a technical means, if you assume that, the, that, the, that the, the federal military were willing to use all its force against the civilian population, it's a completely different story than it was 200 years ago. And that has to be taken into account, I think, in applying the original meaning to the circumstances in which we now find ourselves. A second point is that at the time of the framing, of the Second Amendment, military weapons and civilian weapons used like infantrymen were identical. You, you, had, you used the same weapons. That was even true really up until the time of Miller. During the time of Miller, standard infantry uh, weapons included you know, medium caliber bolt action rifles that people used for deer hunting and semi-automatic pistols that they used for, for self-defense and so on. That has now really changed. I mean, Stinger missiles uh, were not something, that, it's, it's the difference between what the military arms itself with and what the civilian population arms itself with was just not something the framers had ever had occasion to think about. Um, and there's no reason to assume from the language of the Second Amendment or its history, in my opinion, that those kinds of changes should somehow just be ignored uh, in interpreting and applying the Second Amendment to the conditions in which we find ourselves today. Well, on behalf of the Federal Society, I, I really want to thank uh, Professor Lund for favoring us with his expertise. Uh, he is the preeminent authority on this. Uh, and I also especially want to thank uh, David Yasky for agreeing to participate. He could easily have pled uh, desuetude or some other uh, uh, excuse given his, current, given his current occupation and that he's left uh, legal academia. But he didn't. He came here and he was willing to, uh, to uh, defend the stance that he took in the Michigan Law Review and elsewhere and did so eloquently and I think uh, very impressively. So, on all of us, so I watched, want us all to express our appreciation to both of them. <laughs>